What if generosity is something much more than just giving? What if generosity is at the very heart of God? The truth is this, God's love is overflowing and his storehouse of blessings is abundant. His generosity is unlimited. Because of his overflowing love and abundant blessings, our generosity must also be unlimited. In other words, being generous is not something we can choose or choose not to do. It is at the core of our identity in Christ. It is what we are created to be. We exist in order to give ourselves to others. Even more importantly, God gave himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could give the Christ that is living in us to others. Generosity, in other words, is at the heart of our creation. Let's work together to discover its mission, its motivation, and its measurement. Well, if you've been around here at Crossroads for any extended period of time, you've probably noticed that we are celebrating Christmas at a different time this year. Now, in the past, we have celebrated Christmas at Crossroads about two weeks on average, about two weeks before Christmas. And, and this year, it's closer to Christmas and even on Christmas Eve and uh, the few days beforehand. And so I just feel like I owe you an explanation to why we have decided to change the timing of all of this. For about the past three or four years, we've just noticed some interesting trends occur with our attendance at Christmas at Crossroads and the overall effectiveness of the timing of things. And, and so let me just share with you kind of the three basic reasons of why we have shifted uh, the time for this. All right, Number one being that uh, over the past three or four years, our attendance slowly uh, declined. All right. Secondly, um, we noticed that we were offering a lot of programs and events throughout the month of December that was taking a big toll on our staff and volunteers. And honestly, many of you said how confusing it was because you didn't know which event or uh, service to bring your friend or neighbor to because you realized you only had one invite and you didn't want to waste it on something that may not have been uh, something that was uh, intended to be uh, an outreach event. Now, thirdly, uh, we realized that with the people who did show up at Christmas at Crossroads with the time that originally uh, was at, that less and less people who had no church home were attending. We were hearing stories of some churches in the area canceling services and telling their people to come to Christmas at Crossroads. And, and as much as we loved having people and we're glad that some of those churches came, we need to remember that our primary mission is not to steal other believers from other local churches. And so that's why we have shifted this time. We want to be more narrow in our focus. And at the same time, uh, we want to leverage this time of year that people honestly are more open to hearing about uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to encourage you to begin or continue praying for the person that you're going to invite. And uh, we are so excited about what God is going to do in the month of December. Now, I know that there's been a lot of change and transition this year. All right, I'm with you on that. It has been a big year for our family. And so I just want you to know that we hear you. We're in this together, all right? And blessed are the flexible, for they shall not get bent out of shape, right? <laughs> Well, if you know me, you know that I just love Christmas. I mean, this is one of my favorite times of the year. It's one of my favorite seasons. And you and I both know that there's just something about this month that 
kind of produces more awkward interactions and conversations with people than normal, right? I mean, the reality is we're all going to face certain situations and have conversations with people that have the potential to go south and to just be really awkward, right? And so we as a church want you to know that you're not alone in this, all right? In fact, one of the best things you can know is that we're, we're all in this together when it comes to facing these awkward environments and situations. So what we did this past week is we just kind of created a top 10 list of the most awkward conversations some of us are going to have this next month, all right? And so in David Letterman style, we're going to start with number 10 and just make our way down to number one, all right? Number 10, the most awkward conversations uh, this Christmas season goes like this, when are you gonna get married? Number nine, take a look at this rash. Number eight, have you tried CrossFit? <laughs> no, because I don't believe in cults. Number seven, don't, no emails, how much, did you, how much do you make? Number six, whose hair is in this gravy? Ugh, right, gross, throw up. Number five, you gonna eat all that? Number four, did you get a real job yet? Yeah, number three, how far along are you? Now, just so you know, never ever assume that she's pregnant, even if she's in the delivery room, all right? I've learned this the hard way. Number two, you still married? Now the number one most awkward question that we might be asked this Christmas season is this, Who'd you vote for, right? <laughs> now, the truth is we don't like awkward situations. In fact, we go to great lengths to avoid them at all costs. And so if we know that a potentially awkward circumstance is before us, we're going to run the opposite way because we don't like that weird and strange feeling that, that we experience. We just feel out of place, right? And I think that's how some of us feel whenever we talk about money in the church, I mean, there's no doubt about it that it can be a little bit awkward, awkward at times. It's strange to discuss finances in the context of a church because we've probably all sat through talks before where it just wasn't, it just wasn't talked about very well. And, and it just made us feel guilty. It made us feel awkward. And so a lot of us, when we know that the church is going to talk about money, that's the weekend we just sleep in and, and just you know, don't, don't attend. And so this weekend, we wrap up this series on God's design for money management and generosity in our life. And, and if you're a guest with us today or you're not a follower of Jesus, I know that your tendency is gonna be to just go ahead and leave or check out. And, and you certainly have my permission to go ahead and do so. But you may not believe me when I say this at the kind of outset today, that today's talk really has nothing to do about money. I mean, yes, we are going to talk about finances and we're going to talk about the right way to spend and, and what honors God most in our life. But the truth is, there is a much deeper issue playing out when it comes to money in our life. I mean, after all, it was Jesus who said, if you want to know where you're finding your identity, your worth and your value as a person, all you need to do is go back and look at your credit card statements and your checking account. Why? Because how we spend tells and reveals who we think we are, it reveals this condition of our heart. It's something that oftentimes goes overlooked in our life. And so we get to this third M in this generosity journey. We've looked at the mission of giving, the motivation of giving, and, and today is all about the measurement of giving. Now, I got to tell you up front today that, that I really struggled with this message this week. 
I mean, it didn't come to me very quickly, and I would write something, and then I'd delete it, and I kind of would begin over and over again, and it just was a struggle and a wrestling match for me this whole week. Why? Because it just seemed odd. It seemed a little bit strange, and how do you measure generosity, right? I mean, is that something that God even cares about? Is that something that God even detects? And so I kept coming back to this question that goes like this. Is it possible to give and not be generous? Right? I mean, is it possible to give and, and not really be generous? And so that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. All right? If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you for worshiping with us back in the chapel. It's right on that table as you walked in a moment ago. 2 Corinthians is towards the back of your Bibles, uh, right in between the book of 1 Corinthians and uh, the book of Galatians. All right? Now, uh, as you're turning there, uh, realize that, that a guy by the name of Paul wrote this book. It was a, a letter to a church that he had started and established, and, and he loved this church very much, okay? And this church was started about 2,000 years ago, and it, it originated, and it was started in the city of Corinth, hence Corinthians, all right? Now, the city of Corinth in the ancient world was a very dark and broken city, yet there was a lot of wealth and affluence, and, and it was a very influential city in the Roman, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world. It, it was the place where you wanted to live. And yet because of the rampant idolatry and just pagan culture of Corinth, these people who were learning about what Jesus had done for them were, were coming out of these lifestyles. And, and so they were asking really good, important questions like, can I follow Jesus and, and still have sex with my girlfriend? Can I follow Jesus? And, and does he want to have any say in how I handle my finances? And so Paul's entire point in writing the second letter to this church, one of the, one of the main reasons was to tell them that, that generosity isn't something that we check off on our to-do list as believers. No, as Christians, generosity is really this lifestyle that we live. And yet our tendency is to just kind of reduce it down to something that we do. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 9 as Paul uh, really hammers home on who our motivation is, who our example is. Because this is perhaps the most important verse in maybe the whole letter. He goes like, it says, it says this, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich, Paul says. Now, when we see the words poor and rich, Paul isn't talking about Jesus in terms of, of financial status. Instead, this verse describes the very reason that we've been rescued from judgment and condemnation. Yet it also reminds us, as believers, who we are before God. You see, this is tough for us to imagine, but, but Jesus has always existed. I didn't really understand this for the longest time in my life. I always thought that, that Jesus' life began at Christmas time when he was born in the manger. Yet that's not the story of Christmas at all. The Christmas story is about his entrance into the world, not the establishment of his existence. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time our view of Jesus is way too small and limited. I want you to look at how Paul described the richness of Christ in another letter that he wrote to the church in college. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, he, he says it like this. Jesus, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. 
Now, if we're honest, a lot of our perceptions of Jesus is that he's some wimp with a beard who walked around with long flowing hair, who hugged children and told people to be nice and, and to never break any rules, right? I mean, some of us picture Jesus as someone who's maybe slightly stronger than Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> no wonder a lot of guys think that coming to church or following Jesus means giving up your man card. And so could it be that some of us want nothing to do with Jesus because our view of him is much lesser and more sanitized version that's more acceptable to learn about in Sunday school? You see, one of the most common metaphors to describe who Jesus is throughout Scripture is that he is this lion, <laughs> Lions aren't weak. Lions aren't afraid of anything. And you see, Jesus is the sovereign creator of the universe who is above all. He is our king. And it is impossible for us today to have an image of him that is too great, that is too big. Now, let me just give you one little example of this for just a moment, all right? The other day, I discovered this photo uh, that the Voyager 1 space probe took back Uh, took took a picture of on February 14th, 1990. Now this photo is simply called the pale blue dot. You've maybe seen it before and let me just throw it up here, all right? Now when we see that little dot right there, it looks like maybe a piece of dust, a grain of sand or or maybe uh, just the pixel uh, from the camera that was taking this photo. I mean, it doesn't look like much of anything to us, right? Now believe it or not, this photo was the furthest picture taken of planet Earth from outer space at the time. Now, the Voyager 1 shot this image 3.7, catch this, 3.7 billion miles away from Earth. Not million, 3.7 billion miles away from Earth. Can you even imagine that distance? Now, let me just give you an idea of how long that is. If you wanted to drive that distance, all right, without any turns, bathroom breaks, or gas station stops, it would only take you an average of 6,293 years traveling at a speed of 65 miles per hour. Now, if you wanted to arrive much sooner than that and hop on a jet going about 590 miles per hour, it would only take you about 680 years. And yet one one writer in scripture named Isaiah, he said that the universe, all the nations before Jesus, nothing but a drop in the bucket before him. He says before the throne room of God, all the different regions and nations of the earth are, are nothing but fine dust on a scale before him. You see, we can't even fathom the vastness, the glory, and the greatness of who Jesus really is. And so Paul told the Corinthian church that he willingly gave all of that up, all of his power, all of his, thir- all of his authority, because he knew that we needed to be rescued. You see, Jesus imprisoned himself so that we could be free. Jesus was ridiculed so that we could be accepted. Jesus was rejected so that that we could be embraced by him. He was punished so that we could live and escape judgment. And yet here's the thing that's really interesting and strange about the generosity of Jesus. It goes like this, that God's generosity is really reserved for his enemies. I mean, does that even make sense? It's reserved for his enemies? I mean, that just, doesn't, that just doesn't even make sense to us. I mean, it would be like Bill Gates donating a portion of his wealth to Apple, right? I mean, just unheard of. Or, I mean, imagine how strange it would be if some media broke a story, uh, some media outlet broke out a story about how Hillary Clinton was really the biggest supporter of Donald Trump throughout the campaign. We just wouldn't believe it, right? Or how about if someone who lives on the east side actually crossed the border and supported a business on the west side? That's just unheard of, right? 
We don't, we don't even want to be generous towards our enemies at all. And, and yet God's generosity is reserved specifically for his enemies. You see, the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you see, because of his death on the cross, we've not only been freed from judgment, but we also can receive this inheritance that awaits us. Why? Because Jesus willingly exchanged his richness, his authority, his power to enter this dark and broken world so that we could be saved. Now, by a show of fans, how many of you have been watching the TV show Designated Survivor lately? Anybody? Yeah, some of us in here. It's our favorite show right now. I mean, we love it. It's featuring Kiefer Sutherland, who is uh, Jack Bauer in 24. We love that show. It's why we named our youngest son Bauer. All right, I know, very spiritual. <laughs> well, this past week on the episode, I'm not going to give it away, all right, but there's one scene uh, we were watching it Thursday night. There's one scene where the, the son of the director of the FBI is, is taken hostage by, by a terrorist group. And, and so when the kidnappers finally make contact with the director of the FBI, they say, hey, here's what we want you to do if you want your son to live, if you want him to be free. Go to the president and confess to a crime that you didn't really, that you didn't really do. And so like what any loving father would do, the director of the FBI walks into the Oval Office, stands right before the president and confesses to this crime that he didn't really do. And, and so the president has no other option but then to call in Secret Service and the director of the FBI is arrested and then is kind of shamefully taken out of the Oval Office in front of all of his colleagues as if he admitted to a crime that he didn't really do. He took on the blame for something that he didn't really do. But you see, that was the only way that his son could be free. And you see, the fancy Bible word for that is substitutionary atonement. And what that means is that Jesus took the blame for something and a crime that he never did. You see, our sin is our fault, not Jesus' fault. But when Jesus entered this dark and broken world and he willingly went to the cross in our place, he made our sin our fault. His fault. And this is why the Bible says that he who knew no sin actually became our sin for us. Why? So that we can know the righteousness of God. That's the exchange that takes place because of the generosity of God towards his enemies. Let's pick back up with our text and, and see what Paul reminds this church of. Because they made this financial commitment a year before. And so pick up in verse 10 as Paul just kind of reminds them of this. He says, here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were, first who, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin actually doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give, this is really important, give in proportion to what you have. And so evidently a year before, Paul informed the Corinthian church that the Christians in Jerusalem had encountered this famine. They were going through a really difficult time. And, and we don't know exactly what was happening, but we do know that moms and dads in this church were just struggling to even put food on the plate for their kids. And so when the Corinthians first heard about this, as Paul said in verse 10, they were eager to jump in and help. I mean, they were excited about it. They even went so far to commit a large sum of money to the Jerusalem church. Now, we don't know how much they initially committed to giving in the beginning, 
But apparently it was so much that Paul couldn't wait to then go around to some of the other churches that he started in the Macedonian region and brag about what the Corinthians had promised and committed to. Now, when the Macedonian believers heard about the commitment of the Corinthians, they promised to give as well. They they were following the Corinthians' example and they were eager to help out the Jerusalem believers. But you see, about a year had passed and, and the Corinthians hadn't really followed through with their pledge. You see, the longer they delayed their giving, though, the longer they delayed, the more the Jerusalem church suffered. And so Paul basically stepped forward here in this moment and he said, hey, do you remember that promise that you made a year ago? Do you remember how you said that you were going to give to help out the Jerusalem church? Now, Paul didn't ask him in our text, you know, why they hadn't followed through on their commitment, why they weren't giving, what was going on in their life. But for some reason, over the past 12 months, they had drifted from an eagerness to help out to passivity. I want you to look again at the end of verse 10. Paul says this, hey, at the, in, in the beginning, you, you were the first to begin doing it. And, and so we know from this text that, that the Corinthians not only promised a certain amount, but then they began giving. They, they started putting their money where their mouth was. They were eager to help out at first. Now, I guess you could say that the Corinthian believers here, they had intentions to give, right? But Paul doesn't say, you know what, at least your heart was in the right place, right? But you see, there is a difference between what we do and our intentions. Sometimes we think that they are the same thing, but when it comes to giving, our intentions may describe what we want to give and what we intend to give, while what we actually give reveals our priorities, Now, isn't this why we are so quick to judge other people in our life based upon behaviors, yet when it comes to looking at some of the same mistakes we've made in our our own life, we judge ourselves based upon our intentions? Why is that? Well, because we see what others have done, and yet we know what's gone on inside of us, and so we tend to be more forgiving and patient with ourselves. And and yet Paul's basically saying, hey, look, your good intentions are not going to solve the needs that the Jerusalem church has. I want you to imagine with me for, for just a moment that one night I come home and uh, it's just chaotic in our home, all right? Our kids are just screaming their heads off and my wife is just exhausted. The kids have evidently been very disobedient that day and she just can't take it anymore. And so as soon as I walk through the door, seeing what's playing out here before her, I say, hey, Savannah, why don't you go out to a coffee shop, have some time to yourself, and, and I will not only put the kids to bed, but I will clean up the house here, all right? So then Savannah leaves the house and she goes to the coffee shop wherever she, she wants to go. And, and, as I, and as I close the door, I take a look at everything that's going on in our house. All right, our two oldest are chasing each other around, screaming their heads off, can't control them. Our, our youngest, Bauer, has a dirty diaper that's starting to seep through his clothes. And, and our dinner from the night before has, has crusted on top of the countertops. There's dirty laundry everywhere. They're, they're, you know, we need to do the dishes. It's just overflowing from the sink. Our golden retriever has our cat by the neck and, and things are just out of control at this point. Do you know what you call this, by the way? Reality for us, all right? <laughs> And so all of a sudden, as I take all of this in, I'm starting to regret the decision that I made to clean up the house, right? I mean, I'm really second guessing this. And, and so as I take all of this in, I start to say to myself, you know what, I, Savannah will understand if I only get some of this done. And so I'll do just enough to show her that I tried, yet I don't really want to overcommit and get all of, get all of the house straight. And, and so I maybe do the dishes. I, I take the trash out. I'll, 
you know, get the cat obviously out of our dog's mouth. And I don't want to overdo it, right? So I then take the laundry and I just shove it in the closet, all right? And so, and again, all the while I'm telling myself, well, well at least I intended to, to do this. And, you know, it's not like she ever offers to write my sermons for me or, or lead our staff or anything like that. I mean, how generous of me to offer this to her, right? And so when she comes home later that day, because later that night, because she is patient and because she is forgiving, when she sees that I really didn't follow through with my word, chances are she's going to be understanding of it. But let me ask you this. What would happen if I backed out of my word like that every single day, maybe for a whole entire year or once a week for a whole entire year? How do you think Savannah would respond to that? She'd probably call our lawyer right? (laughs) You see, we can only hide behind our intentions for so long until it's made evident that what we actually do, what we actually give reveals what's going on inside here. It reveals whether or not we really love the other person or what it is that we have committed to, committed to serving or, or giving to. This is why generosity has really more to do with our priorities than intentions. Look again at what Paul wrote the Corinthians in his first letter, Second, or 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, he says, on the first day of each week, he's just, giving, he's just putting before them a principle that you should put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at one time. Now, again, we don't know why the Corinthians lacked generosity, but after a year, it was evident that their priorities weren't matched by their intentions. And so in this text, Paul was really telling the church that giving is an act of worship. That's why it's a foundational element every single week in our worship experience here at Crossroads. When the early church gathered on the first day of the week, because God is deserving of our best, that's why it's of the first day. God is deserving of that, including our paychecks. Now, what's interesting here is that one of the first times in Scripture that we read about someone worshiping Jesus as a, as a baby was when the wise men visited him from the east. Now, they traveled this long distance because they knew that a king had been born when they saw that star in the sky. And so they arrived in the run-down redneck town of Bethlehem. I mean, nothing good came from Bethlehem, all right? Bethlehem was the ancient version of Vincennes, all right? Just pray through that, all right? Now look, I want you to look at how they specifically worshiped when they saw Jesus for the first time. You know it's true, all right? Here's what we read. Matthew 2, they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these men had no idea the kind of life that Jesus was going to live. They didn't even really know that he was the son of God, that, that that he had the authority to forgive sins. Yet there was something special about this Jesus child that even as a baby, it caused royalty to worship him by giving a financial gift. You see, worship is generosity, and generosity is about sacrifice. Worship has always been about what you give, and not about what you get. Now, I don't think that we would say it out loud, but I'd even put myself in this category. Our tendency at times is to approach worship through the lens of what can we receive, what can we get, rather than what can we offer, what can we give, right? And so let me just remind us that the main point of worship is not to walk away learning some new deep truth or deep teaching or walking away being fed, although that is part of it. 
I mean, the main point of of why we serve isn't to experience some emotion or to be overcome with joy or even self-esteem, although that can happen when you serve with the right motives. The main point of of giving is, is not to entitle yourself to God, although God does promise to bless us. No, worship is about what we give, not about what we get. It's about something that, that costs us, right? King David, he was a king of Israel at one point in his life, and, and here's what he said about worship. Second <clears throat> Samuel 24, he said, I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. You see, David was determined to not just give, but to really worship and sacrifice. And so again, is it possible to give and to not be generous? Well, let's read again in verse 12 in our text. Paul, Paul described in just one simple sentence how generosity is measured before our God. Take a look at what he said. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. In other words, why you give is just as important as what you give. Your motives matter. We looked at that last week. And give, he says, according to what you have, not, what you, not according to what you don't have. Now, Paul's saying, remember to give with joy. I mean, that's really important, guys. Don't feel obligated. God doesn't need your money. And for that reason, it's very clear that that we're called to give in relation to our income. You see, measuring generosity in terms of a specific amount would totally defeat the purpose. It would reduce giving down to, to a checklist that we accomplish. It's not about a number, Paul says. And so is it possible to give and not be generous? Absolutely. And this happens more than we realize. I mean, we assume that, that just because we leave a pretty generous tip or we give God an extra 20 in the offering plate as, as it's passed, that, you know, we're, we're living a pretty generous lifestyle. But that's not necessarily generosity. It's what Randy Alcorn, he's an author, he says it like this. He says it's really just selective disposal. And so rather than, than giving Rather for our giving to be generous before the Lord, it has to cost us something. And so let me just say it like this. This is really how generosity is measured before God. Generosity has more to do with how much we sacrifice than how much we actually give. Generosity has more to do with how much we sacrifice, how much it costs us than what we're actually giving. Now, it's difficult to put a specific amount to it. We want it to be so neat and tidy that it, again, fits on a to-do list. But you see, God is more interested in what it actually costs us. One time, Mother Teresa said it like this. If you give what you do not need, it's not really giving. Isn't that right? You see, generosity is measured in terms of personal sacrifice. We say it around here a lot. The sacrifice is giving up something that you love for something that you love more. On one occasion, Jesus wanted to drive this point home with his closest friends. And so he, he gathered all of his disciples together and they, they went into the temple and they sat right before the table where people would bring their offering before the Lord. And, and as they were observing people worshiping through their giving, there were a lot of wealthy people that came through and gave large sums of money. Yet Jesus didn't say that, that that's actually what God wants. It wasn't until this poor widow came who had nothing at all she gave all that she had that, that Jesus said, that, that's actually what I'm looking for. Check out what Mark chapter 12 says. I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, as poor as she is, she's given everything she had to live on. And you see, if God measured our generosity by the amount that was given, then this lady's offering wouldn't have been that much. But you see, the less that she had the more it costs her to give. 
And you see the size of her sacrifice represented the depth of trust and love for the Lord. When I knew that uh, I wanted to marry Savannah back in high school, I knew that I had to save up for a ring. And, and so one summer, I got a job working at a tire center in Louisville, Kentucky, a place called Michael Tires. And that whole summer, I mean, I worked like a dog, all right? I would oftentimes open and close the stores, and, and it was hard labor, right? And, uh, I mean, I would come home just filthy with oil and grease all over me. And, and it was a really difficult job. About once a week, on average, I would get injured in some way. And it's just a miracle that I didn't cut off my my finger that summer. Now, whenever I would get off work, Savannah would always say to me, I mean, you're just disgusting. Don't even think about touching me. And again, she didn't know why I was working. She, she didn't know that I was really saving up for a ring. And so later that year when I proposed to Savannah and I, I gave her this ring, all of a sudden things became full circle for her. And, and when she looked down at that ring and she realized that that whole entire summer, I worked so hard to be able to, to purchase this ring in that moment, it, it was more than a piece of jewelry for her. It wasn't the most expensive ring at the jewelry store. But you see, when she looked down and she saw what I had worked for and what I had given, it reminded her of how much I loved her because of the amount of sacrifice that I had given. It also made her feel really guilty for criticizing me that whole summer. And that was awesome too. <laughs> now, as your pastor, I want you to know this that I love you, I do, I love this church, I love our past, I, I love what, what God has done here, how God has brought us through some really difficult seasons and challenges. I love how so many of you have selflessly sacrificed to, to even bring our church to where it is today. I love where we're headed in the future, I love our vision. I, I really believe that our best days are, are still before us. I love our staff. I love who I get to work with. I love our elders. I mean, it is such a joy to serve here. And this sounds really basic to say, but, but I want you to know this, that I, lo I love Jesus. I love what he's done for me. I love that he gives me grace and forgiveness, even when it's tough for me to give grace and forgiveness to, to myself. I love that he sees those parts of my life that I want no one else to see, and yet he still chooses to forgive me and give me what I need most. I love it that he's not done with me. I love that Jesus not just loves me, but, but he likes me and he designed me to be a specific way. I, I love that about him. I need to trust my motives when I say this because I don't say it to brag whatsoever. But you see, it's for all those reasons that I just said that for Savannah and I, it is an honor, it is a privilege to give of our time, to give of our resources and money to what God is doing here at Crossroads. I mean, there is nothing else that we would rather do. There's no other place that we would rather be than serve Jesus here in Evansville at Crossroads. You see, what you give towards is what you really, is what you really love. And so in just a minute, the band's going to come out here and, and we're going to have a time of offering. Once they get back from their smoke break, all right? <clears throat> just kidding. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> But we're going to have an opportunity to give. And look, I'm not going to tell you to give a specific amount. I'm not going to put a number in front of you. That would just totally defeat what we've talked about. But I would say that is your giving costing you something? I mean, if you were to completely remove giving from your budget, would you, would you even notice? And so that's maybe one challenge for, for some of us in here. 
There are others of us, you're financially generous, but maybe you haven't been so generous with your time. And, And time's really important. Sometimes the most generous thing that we can do with ourselves is to give of our time and And so generosity, it really hasn't made itself visible in terms of maybe serving here at Crossroads. And and so could God be calling you to serve on a specific volunteer team to serve in some capacity? And maybe that's a takeaway for you today. Or lastly, maybe you walk in here today with loads of debt and you just feel overwhelmed by life. You just, things have just gotten out of control and and you just feel like... I don't even know how I'm gonna get out of, this, out of this hole that I'm in. And you've got a lot of debt and, and it's one thing to feel that way and it's another to feel like you're in it all alone and you've got no resources and tools to help you out of it. And, and so maybe a really good next step for you with this whole series with what we've talked about is to sign up to, to be a part of what we call Financial Peace University. All right, it's a class that's beginning next month, every Monday night, beginning January 16th. And and this is a class that I've personally taken, a lot on our staff have taken, that will put some tools before you and will give you a plan so that you can experience some financial freedom in your life. So if if that's something that you want to do, then I just want you to pull out your phone, text FPU to 25827. We'll send you a link and you can register to be a part of Financial Peace University. It's a class, again, every Monday night beginning next month. And uh, it may be a really great step for you to getting out of this, this hole of debt so that you can be freer in the way that you live. All right, let's stand up. Offering plates are going to be passed here in a minute. We're going to sing as we do this. Uh, But before we do that, uh, let me pray for us, all right? God, I love this place. I love this church. I love these people. More than that, I love you, and I love what you've not only done for us 2,000 years ago, but how your generosity is, is really for us. And it's offensive and we might wanna resist it and push back, but at one point in time, we were your enemies. We haven't always been at peace with you. And yet, even at our worst, God, that was the moment when you were at your best. And so we thank you for the cross. We thank you for being our substitute, Jesus. We thank you for absorbing all the punishment that we deserve because of all the garbage and mistakes and sin in our life. And so God, would you just continue to help us keep our focus on you? Because I'm just speaking for myself. When I focus on myself, I'm miserable. It's never enough. And yet when I can learn to look up and see others and live more selflessly, that's where real true joy can be found. And so Lord, continue to teach us to love you more and to follow after you more completely. Thanks for what you allow us to do and what you allow us to be a part of here. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.